near sideline. Trinneman is there. Makes the catch at the 30, 20, 10, and just like that! Touchdown, Cougars! On the first play of the game! Takes it down the right side of the lane, right to the rim, scoop, and a score! It rolls around and drops down. Takes this free kick and curls it inside the left post. What a goal! He's been on the headset for the last quarter century of BYU sports. Now, he's on BYU Radio every week as we go behind the mic with Greg Rubel. Here's your host, the voice of the Cougars, Greg Rubel. Well, good evening, Cougar Nation. Coming off our holiday break, great to be back with you. Behind the mic here in Studio 2 at the BYU Broadcasting Building on the BYU campus in Provo, Utah. Once a week, I get this opportunity to chat with BYU sports and sports media personalities, current and former Cougars, you may already know, but may get to know a bit better during these conversations. Tonight marks our first episode of 2018, our 16th show overall. We've had a lot of fun the first 15 for sure. If you're joining us live tonight, you are tuned in on BYU Radio, Sirius XM 143, BYU or the BYU Radio app. If you're listening on demand, you've got us on podcast via the Behind the Mic with Greg Rubel podcast feed or on the Behind the Mic show page at BYURadio.org, where you can also get every show archived for listening at your leisure. The BYU Radio site also archives and podcasts our weekly Dave Rose Coaches show along with BYU Sports Nation on a daily basis. Coming up on this evening's show, BYU football's new offensive coordinator, Jeff Grimes, joining me in studio. Then from one kind of football to another, former BYU women's soccer standout Michelle Vasconcelos will be my guest. My interview with Michelle tonight is our Catching Up with the Cougars segment sponsored by BYU alumni. But as we frequently do, we kick off the show with one of my colleagues here in the BYU Broadcasting Building. And tonight, it's a conversation with the man who calls all the plays for BYU TV sports. He is senior coordinating producer Michael Miner. Michael, welcome into Studio 2. Thanks, Greg. It's great to be here. Happy New Year. To you, too. And uh, the, the, the position senior coordinating producer encompasses so much here in this building. What's the, what's the quick way to describe what you do uh, to those that want to know what it is you do here at BYU Broadcasting? You know, it's a great question. I get asked that all the time. A senior coordinating producer is synonymous with executive producer. Uh, it's, it's kind of morphed into that title from in the sports world. Uh, executive producer is easier to say, <laughs> I think, but uh, that's that's what it is. And what an executive producer does is you oversee. It's 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 really analogous to a head coach of a team, uh, where you're overseeing all of the aspects of the function that you're um, trying to accomplish, and then making sure that uh, none of that runs off the rails. But it's it's really a ten thousand foot view of everything, and making sure that. Everything is in place to be successful with what you're trying to accomplish. As much as you enjoy what you do and as good as you are at what you do, would you have given it all away at some point in your life to live the rock and roll life? Well, it's funny that you say it because I I did do that. Um, I mean, that's all I wanted to do from the time I was six years old was be a rock star. Uh, Somebody put some drumsticks in my hand and, and... for many, many years, that was my singular goal in life was to be a rock star. And, and I you know, started playing in bands when I was in junior high school and, and into high school, uh, started to play with some decent players to the point where we were literally playing at proms and you know, all kinds of events, and, and I was living that life. And in fact, 
that's how I got to BYU. I, I came to BYU not because I chose BYU, but because I followed some bandmates here. And if I'm being completely candid, I, I lasted one semester here initially at BYU uh, and uh, found some other players. And uh, next thing I know, we're touring around the country for about seven years living that rock and roll lifestyle until I had an epiphany and realized that uh, if this band broke up, I'd be flipping hamburgers <laughs> and probably ought to get back to, to doing something legitimate. And, and uh, amazingly, BYU let me back into school, and that's when I found television. So how old were you on your return to BYU as a student? I was 27, uh, 26, 27, I think. So, you know, seven years effectively had passed, and... Uh, there's many times that I wish I could get those seven years back, but you got to chase your dream, you know, and that was my dream for a long time. And I was fortunate enough to get paid to to play music. Now I'm living another dream where I get paid to watch sports. And, and so I've been, I've had a pretty charmed life. Upon your return to BYU, uh, how soon did it take for you to then uh, get yourself uh, entrenched in, or at least starting to get entrenched in the uh, the media business or sports media business? Well, I found it by accident, um, like a lot of people do, especially in sports broadcasting. Uh, you may decide that you're going to go into to broadcasting as a career. Uh, I was just looking for something that, quite honestly, was going to give me the same adrenaline rush as being on stage with the band. And um, I migrated into advertising. I wanted to do something creative, so... I declared myself as an advertising manager with the thought of being a creative director someday. But I needed a job, too. And I happened to get a job with KBYU-TV as an on-air promotions producer and discovered this amazing electronic sandbox that I could play in over at the uh, Harris Fine Arts Center with cameras and switchers and editing machines and and um, I, I did. I took advantage of that. I taught myself how to edit and how to shoot. And then as, as frequently happens in this business, some days, uh, one day somebody asked, is there anybody here that likes to do sports or could do sports? And I raised my hand and said, I like sports. Good. We need you over at the stadium to help with football production. So I walked into uh, a TV truck for the very first time. And where most people would be, probably intimidated by that with all the monitors and lights and you've seen a control room before it felt like home to me and i just i remember vividly thinking this is what i want to do i want to stay here and again i've been very very fortunate for to have a three-decade career not looking back and doing that for a living in the late 80s i'm fairly certain I was in a control room with you once or twice in the uh, Harris Fine Arts Center uh, doing what I was trying to do at, uh, at KBYU uh, back in the day as a student, doing the writing and the producing and all those kinds of things. At that point, I, I remember bouncing into you once or twice. You wouldn't remember that maybe, but I remember your name and seeing you in the booth. Does that, does that timeline kind of match up, late 80s? Yeah, it does. Yeah. Yeah, I do. I remember that. Um, you and Dave McCann kind yeah. of paralleled each other. Yeah, we were at the same time. Uh, yeah. Dave was a student of mine. Uh, I was I was actually teaching back even back then as an adjunct, you know, trying to give students an avenue into sports broadcasting. Uh, Dave was a student, and uh, and so I, I watched you know the parallel careers of Dave and you and and some other people that are now 
giants in the industry. So. Well, it's a, it, it was a really good laboratory, um, at least for me. Uh, it gave me such a great hands-on experience to where, um, you know, when KSL had an opportunity to bring me in, I felt like I already had a really firm foundation and a pretty good sense of, uh, of what I needed to do as a professional. And I got, that, uh, I got that foundation here at BYU. What it has done and still continues to do uh, for aspiring broadcasters is pretty phenomenal. It is. Um, there's, you know, I, I say it probably too much, but there really is no, nothing like this at any other college university. Uh, and I, I've had, uh, again, the, the fortune of being able to, to go to many other places around the country uh, in my career and uh, see a lot of the Division One schools and what they have as broadcasting programs. And there literally is nothing like what BYU Broadcasting has. The facilities that we have here are second to none. And to have that as an educational platform and a springboard for a potential career into the industry for students is amazing. And, you know, I I think very forward thinking by the administration and our stakeholders in Salt Lake. I don't want to omit uh, too much of your your broadcast timeline, but suffice to say, uh, you've been involved at a local, regional and national level. Um, coordinating and producing sports events uh, for the old Blue White, the old Sports West, um, regional sports nets in California, ESPN, of course. uh, And and now you are back after all of that. Uh, ESPN, uh, your time with ESPN um, gets a lot of attention because of what ESPN is. And yet, in its own way, what happens here at BYU Broadcasting uh, mirrors, parallels, um, a lot of what they're able to do from a technical standpoint. Yeah, I'm, it's it's eerie, really, because unbeknownst to me, as I was at ESPN in Bristol, uh, they were building this facility, and, and they sent architects and uh, engineers out to ESPN to, to look at the best of what ESPN was, and then brought it back and replicated it here in this building to the point that when I came back and saw it for the first time, I literally said, I, I just left this place. <laughs> you know, it's, it's that close to what ESPN has, which is, again, remarkable because ESPN is state-of-the-art. Um, so it, you're right. It's, it's amazing that BYU would have the foresight to, to build something like this, and it's used. Um, can't say that about some some other entities and some other experiments that I that I was involved with as well. Like you know, nothing against the Longhorn Network, but Texas tried to create the Longhorn Network, and that's an ESPN property. Uh, they'll admit it. It's, it's struggling a little bit uh, because I think they over anticipated the appetite for that product outside that school's geographic, you know, scope of influence. BYU literally has a global fan base. There's maybe one other school that can say that, and that's Notre Dame. Yeah. And, you know, there's parallels there. From uh, BYU Sports Nation, a daily one-hour talk show uh, on BYU TV and BYU Radio, to the hundreds of sporting events that, uh, that, you, that you help produce, to what happens on BYU Radio how much of your vision relative to BYU's sports product and covering it is being realized right now? Uh, a lot. And, and and I give a lot of credit to uh, our current president, Kevin Worthen, and uh, the managing director who brought me back from ESPN, Derek uh, Marquis, 
for that latitude. And when they brought me in and when I finally decided that I was going to come back as a, as a full-timer here, uh, and, that, and that, that wasn't initially a plan. You know, I, I came back here just as kind of a hiatus from ESPN. But the more I saw it, the more I realized this might not be a bad place to you know come full circle in my career. But when I did determine that I was going to take over this position as senior coordinating producer, their marching orders to me were – bring what you learned at ESPN to BYU and and they got out of my way and let me do that and so we had the latitude to create BYU Sports Nation actually the first thing that we that we launched that was unique was the pregame and postgame shows that I don't think any other school does uh you know a one hour pregame show for every game both home and away and then a postgame show following that up uh, where you hear directly from the coaches and players right on the field um, you know when their emotions are so high then BYU Sports Nation came along and other shows like after further review and now the coaches shows right. that we've brought in that you're involved with so it's it's been wonderful to have that kind of support you know from the administration here the, as great as the opportunities are uh, in this building, there are probably uh, some uh, challenges that are more kind of global in scope relative to the industry, I guess we'd say right now. Where do you think this thing is going when we talk about sports uh, broadcasting and, and, and platform availability in general? Because times are changing quickly right now. Yeah, that's that's such a great question because there is – uh, a huge unsettled nature in sports broadcasting and all broadcasting right now just because of the way people consume media. Uh, just think about it. You, you, not very many of us are waiting around for whatever network to broadcast our favorite show and we're going to watch it when they tell us to watch it. Uh, sports is an exception to that. It doesn't have any shelf life. You really have to consume sports live, either radio or television. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's that paradigm going on. And we're tr- the, we as an industry are trying to get our heads around where that's going. The other part of that is the linear to digital aspect. Linear being the traditional over the air, I'm going to turn on my TV in my living room and watch it. Um, we're shifting away from that because of the other, you know, non-live content consumption habits where you could go to Netflix and binge watch, you know, whatever, uh, to a more digital consumption platform. Uh, I fully believe that not too distant in the future, the televisions that we have on our walls are going to be giant smartphones. Hmm. I mean, that's what we're getting to. And uh, it's it's really interesting to watch the industries kind of align towards how that's happening. Um, ESPN, for example, uh, a lot of our listeners may know they've gone through some some issues recently, uh, some layoffs, and and a lot of that is blamed on what's called cord cutting, you know, trying to get away from the cable monopoly. But now they're they're countering that by going to a strategy called over the top distribution. And, and so you're going to hear those buzzwords. The The key to all of this, I think, is monetization. You know, it's always about money at the end of the day. How are we going to make money off this? ESPN is spending exorbitant amounts of money and has spent exorbitant amounts of money on rights 
broadcast rights. They just purchased Fox and a lot of the Fox RSNs. Mm-hmm. And RSNs, regional sports networks. Right. Yeah. And, and I think that's going to be a bit of a game changer because that effectively locks up broadcast rights for them for a lot of you know the very popular sports. So you're going to have two major players now, I think, uh, in the commercial sports broadcast world with NBCU and ESPN. We play well into that because we're nonprofit. And we have a we have a really good relationship, you know, a collaborative relationship with ESPN. So you know that doesn't really threaten us, but we still have to be agile right. in how we deal with that. Last thing for you tonight, and we'll do this again, I'm sure. Uh, for BYU fans, coverage opportunities and consumption opportunities have never been better or greater. Can they get even better? Yeah, I, I think they can. Um, you know, one of the things we struggled with early on was HD distribution. Of course, everybody who who has ever experienced sports in HD on television, uh, once you experience that, you you want you don't want to go back. And now we're going to ultra high definition, and so the resolution is getting even better. Um, that was an issue for for BYU television in in our early iteration. Uh, it's becoming less of an issue because of streaming. You know, where you can now stream everything that we do. Well, you could always stream everything that we do, but if you stream that and go to your television again or your computer and go to one of our apps, uh, you can watch everything that we do streamed live in in HD. And so, you know, I think we're offsetting some of those initial challenges technologically. Good stuff. Uh, thanks for giving us some insight into an industry that you know all too well. And again, I think we'll do this again uh, down the line for sure. Love to. Anytime. Great, great to have you on. And thank you also uh, for the role you've played in my professional development here at uh, BYU Broadcasting as well. It's it, great being with you. It, it's great to have you finally where you belong, I think, over here with us. Uh, we're delighted to have the voice of the Cougars as part of BYU Broadcasting. Well, Mike, thank you so much uh, for your leadership and then uh, for your contributions here tonight. Thank you. All right, coming up after the break, BYU's offensive coordinator Jeff Grimes sits down where Michael is right now here in Studio 2 as Behind the Mic with Greg Rubel continues. Great to have you with us listening in on BYU Radio, Sirius XM 143, BYURadio.org, and the BYU Radio app. BYU's new OC, Jeff Grimes, next on Behind the Mic. Welcome back to Behind the Mic with Greg Rubel. Well, once upon a time, Jeff Grimes was conditioned to hold BYU in slightly less than fond regard. As an offensive lineman at UTEP in the days of the old Western Athletic Conference, BYU was a rival and a team that uh, beat UTEP in each of the four seasons in which Jeff lined up for the Miners. Now he did have Andy Reid as a coach for two seasons, so perhaps a soft spot had begun to develop for BYU either way. Jeff was an El Paso guy, and El Paso was where he got his start in coaching as a high school O-line coach and offensive coordinator in the early 1990s. He remained in the Lone Star State as he entered the college coaching world, first as a grad assistant at Rice in Texas A&M, then as an O-line coach at Hardin-Simmons, a Division three school in Abilene. Jeff ultimately left Texas when Boise State came calling in the year 2000. And from Boise, it was on to coach the offensive line and coordinate the run game at Arizona State. And then came BYU. 
hired by Gary Croton, retained by Bronco Mendenhall. A year later, Jeff Grimes came to Provo. After three seasons at BYU, Coach Grimes then crisscrossed the country as an O-line coach, run game coordinator, and or assistant head coach at P5 Powers Colorado, Auburn, Virginia Tech, and LSU. Having coached the Tigers in a just-completed season that included a win over BYU and a New Year's Day Bowl against Notre Dame, Coach Grimes is now going from Baton Rouge to BYU to serve as offensive coordinator under head coach Kalani Sitake in year three of Kalani's tenure. Starting his second tour of duty with the Cougars, Jeff Grimes is here in Studio 2. Coach Grimes, welcome to you. Thanks. Glad to be here. You know, you make all that sound pretty good. I, I, it is I, pretty good. Yeah, I might, I might hire you to do some promotions for me. <laughs> but I might also add that there was no soft spot for BYU in my heart. Regardless. Even with Andy. No, absolutely not. And really only because because we couldn't beat them. It was the only team in the conference we didn't beat during my years at UTEP, but obviously had a, a great respect for the program. They had a big win over BYU just preceding your days as That's a minor right. that many BYU fans remember uh, quite well. Uh, since I brought up Andy... Um, Andy Reid, uh, of course, former Cougar, uh, was one of the first coaches you got to work with as a, as a college player, wasn't he? He was. He was my offensive line coach for two years early in college. And, uh, God, I just had so much respect for the guy. And, you know, there are so many coaches, I think, that fit into one of two categories. They're the, they're the guy that you may have respect for, <laughs> but you don't necessarily like them a whole lot. And then there are those guys that – that are a little bit more of a player's coach, and you kind of might enjoy being around them, but you don't have as much respect for him. He was, he was really probably the first, the first significant guy in my life that I had an equal amount of both for. I just had so much respect for him uh, as a man and as a coach. He had so much knowledge to give me, and I just wanted to soak it up as well as I possibly could. Um, but at the same time, I, I really. I really liked him and wanted to please him in in the way that that you want to please your dad. You know, he, he he's the only guy I can remember who would look at me and yell at me, and it made me want to do better. And so, hmm. I don't I don't think any of us should necessarily try to be anyone else in coaching, but I think he certainly set a real positive image in my mind before I even knew I was going to get into coaching. Yeah, right from the get go as a player, and and Andy as he went on with different jobs. Uh, has been given more and more responsibility to the point where he's not only uh, a coach in most places, he, he's also, he also has a hand in the personnel. And so when, when, when you're that guy, you're going to make some decisions that will be tough uh, for some players to take. And yet it seems to me that in observing him over the many years, even players that may have been um, given some bad news at some point never lose their affinity for Andy. Like he, he has friends all over the league amongst players and coaches. There was a great little video clip from this past year um, when the Chiefs played Buffalo, and Shady McCoy, LaShawn McCoy, was playing for Buffalo, and he spies Andy on the field, and Andy doesn't know that LaShawn can see him, and LaShawn runs up and literally like jumps onto his back, like bear hug, and there was like a true affection there uh, from one of his former players that's gone on to be, for, you know, coach, play for somebody else. It seems like a lot of people feel that way about Andy. Yeah, and I think again because that that quality is so rare of of being someone that you have equal parts respect admiration and a, and a genuine liking for that it that it really does um, promote an unusually fond feeling yeah you've had the opportunity to work uh, with and alongside so many different coaches and coaching styles over your quarter of a century plus in coaching um, do you do you view those as uh, as 
um, uh, I guess, contributions to who you are as a coach, or, or do you simply, um, you know, take the good from from previous associations and implement it into who you are? How do you view what your previous coaches have given you uh, over the years? Well, I, I think we're all, to some extent, a byproduct of our environments. Um, in the same way that that I would recognize my parents, my church leaders, some of my teachers from an early age, I would certainly give credit to the coaches that I've worked for and worked with along the way as well. So, yeah, certainly I, I have a great deal of um, respect and gratitude towards the guys who have helped me get to where I am. What, what, how would you describe your style at this stage of your career if you had to put a description to it? My style as a coach. Yeah. Um, you know, I read a, a, a quote from one of my former players here, Eddie Keel, and he said that he never hated, and uh, I think the other part was respected or liked or something, loved the man. I think I, I think it was I never hated a man and loved a man <laughs> at the same time as much as I did Coach Grimes. And I, I, really, I really appreciate that because it, it tells me that um, I did something to reach down inside him that at times he may not have appreciated as a player, um, but he and I always had a great relationship even, even as a player and, and have ma- maintained that since that time. And so, you know, I, I, I really try to be um, a guy that um, – gives what is needed and and to try to be fair with the players and just like my own children I got four kids and sometimes they need a hug and a shoulder to cry on and sometimes they need my size 13 in their <laughs> rear end and I'm perfectly capable at doing both it's not so much word association but but if I were to um, uh, mention the different places you've coached could you could, could you come up with a with a with a few words or an immediate recollection of that time in your life? Would that be something you could do? Sure. So if, if I said um, Riverside High School, um, fondness, um, a, a real affection for the kids that I coached there, many of whom didn't have a whole lot of other things going for them besides an opportunity to be a part of a football team. And this is El Paso, right? That's correct. Yeah. And, um, and and the coach there was the first, my first boss in, in coaching, and he showed me how to, how to love the kids. And, and he coached them hard, unbelievably hard at times, but everything he did was done for the kids, for the players. Texas A&M. Learning. Um, in three years there, no, two years there as a, as a graduate assistant with the offensive line, I, w- I worked um, with and under so many really good coaches. Um, so um, Mike Sherman was the offensive line coach mm-hmm. my first year. Then Steve Marshall, then J.B. Grimes, all three well-respected throughout the, the coaching ranks in in offensive line play. Um, offensive coordinators, guys like Steve Ensminger, who just took over again at yep, LSU. At LSU yeah. um, Steve Cragthorpe, um, former head coach at Louisville and Tulsa and NFL coach and a lot of other places. And so um, I just learned so much from, from so many coaches while I was there. Hardin Simmons in Abilene. Um, it's a D3 school, right? It is, and that's what I was trying to uh, put my finger on. Um, 
an understanding that football is football and coaching is coaching, regardless of the level, regardless of the number of people in the stands. On Saturdays, the game is still the game. What was a good crowd at Hardin-Simmons? Home game. A good crowd? <laughs> Against the in-town, in-town rival? I don't know, maybe a couple thousand. <laughs> Different deal. Yeah. Uh, your first stint at BYU? Family. Um I had my family and I really enjoyed being here. And so it was a very, very good time for me and my family while we were here. Um, My youngest son, um, who's in sixth grade now, was born here. Um, And and, and I thought of when I first thought of the word family, it was in in two senses. One, what a good time this was for my family being here, but also just the, the family feel of this place. And you know, I I recognize that again. Uh, the first game of this year, when we when we played in New Orleans, and I I told my wife. I think I even texted her before we even played the game. When I went back in the locker room before we had actually started our warm ups. You know, as coaches, often you go out on the field before the teams really start their formal warm ups, and there were so many people that were a part of the program in some form or another that. I had a relationship with that went back those 12, 13 years to when I was here before, more so than than any other team, even even the teams that I was much closer to in proximity and and had played against. You know, I've I've been in the SEC for eight of the past nine years, and and when you play in the same conference against a lot of the same people, you get to know a lot of the same coaches, not only from that, but from recruiting and recruiting all the same kids and all that sort of thing. But I never had a team – that I played against that I felt more warmth from than I did when I when I saw so many people this year prior to the BYU game. Before I leave BYU, uh, you were not hired by Bronco Mendenhall. You were a Gary Croton hire. Mm-hmm. So you ate one season with Gary, and then they make a change. Where were you at that point? Uh, what Were you like, I got to get out of here, I got to move, or did you want to wait to see what was going to happen? Or what was your sense at that time when there was going to be a transition there? Well, first, I, I felt really bad for Gary because I, I, I know how much he loves this place and I know how badly he wanted wanted to win. Um, and I thought he just handled it in a first-class manner when he left. Um, and, and I knew the deal coming in. He told me what we would have to do in order for him to keep his job. But then when when they announced that, that Bronco was going to take over, um, I – I knew that I would have an opportunity to stay because Bronco and I, I think, had a had a mutual respect, and he was my neighbor. He was three houses down the street, across the street, and his three boys at that time were about the same age as my three kids, and so they were over at my house all the time, and so we had a had a friendship as well. And so um, I had another school offer me um, an opportunity to actually to be an offensive coordinator hmm. um, at the time. And so I was making a decision at the time whether to stay here with Bronco and 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 keep doing what we were doing here in a different way, or go to this other thing. And um, Bronco made it very compelling for me to stay. And 
Um, I'm, I'm really, really thankful that I did. Um, I, I so much enjoyed the process of being a part of changing the culture at a, at a program, um, really starting over from scratch, even though I had been here. I've done it many times as a coach mm-hmm. when you go somewhere new, right? But being a part of a place and then kind of starting from scratch, it was really cool just to kind of see um, everything from the from the very beginning there and, and Bronco and his formative stages as a head coach. That was very rewarding for me. Two jobs after BYU was uh, Auburn. How do you look back on your time with them? Your first set of Tigers. Um, grateful. Grateful for the opportunity to be a part of a national championship. National championship. It's just so hard to do. It's hard <laughs> to win all your games at this <laughs> level. It's really hard. And uh, very grateful to have been a part of that. And just like BYU... Maybe not to the same extent, but there are a lot of guys that I, that I still have very close relationships with that that played for me or coached with me during that time. And, you know, sometimes winning has a way of bringing you together, but also losing does as well. And, you know, two years later, we went 3-9 and nine and 0 for in the SEC and were shown the door. <laughs> um, but all of those things were great life experiences. One of those players with whom you associated at Auburn and later on as a grad assistant is Ryan Pugh who's now going to join you here in Provo. Right. And um, so I always knew Ryan would be a great coach if he chose to go into it. His dad was a very successful high school coach and a great man. Um, and Ryan always had a great mind for the game. And and uh, when when he played it uh, for me at, at, at Auburn, he, he kind of saw himself as the coach on the field. And sometimes I had to reel him back in a little <laughs> bit. A number of times, actually. Uh, but he was not only, not only a great player, but... Um, but had a, had a just a a, a great um, a, a great understanding of football that came from growing up in a real football rich area, growing up with with his dad as a coach. But then he also applied his knowledge. He really worked hard at it. And so, <clears throat> when I had the chance to bring him on as a graduate assistant with me at Auburn, I jumped on it. And then um, we get get fired and. I end up at Virginia Tech and am able to bring him along with me there and then went to LSU and didn't have a spot for him at the time. So he went to Cincinnati a year later when we had a spot open up. I brought him with me there. So he's been my assistant at three different places, and uh, he's he's really kind of like my oldest son. So you think BYU's getting a good one, obviously. Absolutely. Yeah. I've always known when I had the chance to hire my offensive line coach, it was going to be Ryan Pugh. And and I know a lot of really good offensive line hmm. coaches, and there were a lot that were very interested in this job. Speaks well for him, and he comes uh, right from UTSA, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And so Frank Wilson, who saw in him what I saw in him when he was a graduate assistant with us, took him there. So he got two years of uh, the experience of having his own group. Your most recent recollections and freshest memories are from... LSU, which was just days ago. Um, how do you look back on your tenure there uh, that leads you to where we are today? Interesting. <laughs> there, there, it, it seems that there's um, there's never a dull moment at LSU. There's just There was just so much drama that surrounded the four years that I was there in terms of coaches coming and going, rumors here and there. Um, 
but but through it all, again, um, uh, thankful for the relationships, the guys that, you know, had one just call me Monday, my first day here, called me and wanted some advice for something. We talked on the phone for, for a good while and trying to help him through some things and got a text today from from my wife, from one of my other players, and said, hey, what's what's Coach's new number? I need to give him a call. So um, those are the things that last. You know, the, the the national championships, conference championships, all of those things are great, and, and we, we all want to be a part of those. Um, the, the competitive spirit in us is what's drawn towards that. But it's the chasing those things, and it's through the journey of, of working towards that achievement that you really – I think, develop something that matters, and that's relationships that last. It's not the overriding storyline, but as a non-LDS coach coming back to BYU for a second go-round, clearly um, your three years previously um, gave you an impression, left you with a sense that uh, even while not a member of the, uh, of the prevailing faith, this is a place and a job and a school and an environment that works well for you and your family. It really does. And, you know, while I was here and after I left, got so many questions, as did my wife, about what was that like? You know, you're not Mormon. What were you doing there? And, yeah. You know, that must have been really hard. But quite the opposite was true. And, and we've had the opportunity to share that story with so many people. And, again, life is is um, is about relationships. And um, my wife and I are Christians and very involved in our church. And faith is a big part of our family. And. Uh, although we're not LDS, I think um, that we we found early on that there are, are a lot more commonalities than differences and really found more in found found a shared morality and um, a faith that that shared many of the same principles that we did. And because of that felt really in a lot of ways that we, um, had a lot more things in common with some of the people here, with most with with most of the people who live mm-hmm. in in this area, than we did at a lot of the other places that we've lived and coached. Interesting. Um, you mentioned that your youngest son was born here, right? In your first go around, mm-hmm. your family got bigger since you left Provo. Yeah, we adopted a little girl when we were in Auburn. She um, Jada was um, adopted from Ethiopia when she was eight months old, and she's now eight years old. <laughs> When when you bring someone into your life who is still an infant and their perceptions are still being shaped, how how soon was it until um, you felt that 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 she in her frame of reference realized this was my new family, my new life, and and how long did it take for you think everything to kind of click? Well, to what she to what her little mind and heart could understand. Um, at that time, being eight months old, you know, things are what, – what they connect to are things that are very simple. Mm-hmm. So they, they had told us – and, you know, you go through all this, um, this pre-training and pre-screening before they allow you to go through with the adoption. And they had, they had talked to us about um, a lot of the things that can often happen and, and that there's often a time before a child might bond with you and there might be some separation um, for a while. And they said, you know, this is going to be very different for her. She's been in an orphanage or a transition home for the past four months and has basically been raised by, um, a bunch of nannies, a bunch of ladies who cared for these kids. And so 
they may have never seen a white person, particularly a white man. And so don't be shocked if she has um, an instant reaction that isn't positive. And so we've got we've got a couple of pictures, and and one of them is the first moment when I'm holding her, and she's she's arching her back away from me, and about her face is about two feet away from me, and her eyes are just really big, trying to figure out who is this that's holding me. And so that was that was the initial meeting, and then. We played with her for a little while, and she warmed up to us a little bit. We fed her lunch, and then she fell asleep right here on my chest, which to me is the, is the most um, peaceful feeling in the entire world as an adult, to have mm-hmm. a child fall asleep on you. And so I sat down on the couch, and she fell asleep on me and slept for, I don't know, maybe, maybe a half hour, an hour, or something like that. And then when she woke up, she lifted her little head up and looked at me, and just smiled the biggest <laughs> smile, and from that moment on, we really connected. Um, obviously, as as time has passed, we've connected in a different way. At that time, she wasn't even speaking; yeah. didn't know who we were. But um, even even at an early age, at that moment, I think I think we all recognized that that we had a special bond. Are y'all still separated right now, or is everyone else back home still in Louisiana? Yeah. So my oldest daughter is a senior in high school right now. And normally we try to move everybody out just as fast as we possibly can because none of us like being apart. Um, but with her being a senior, uh, we we didn't want to move her during her senior year. So so they'll move in the summer when school's out. Well, this was not an X and O's night, obviously. Um, we'll probably have those conversations uh, in, in future months or years. Uh, but maybe I guess uh, as we let you go, one last thing would just be about uh, – how this first week of work has gone, uh, how much there is really to do, and how excited you are about uh, putting a product on the field in the spring and the summer. There is a lot to do. Um, I I can't seem to get to the bottom of my to-do list. As a matter of fact, I've got several of them, and each day, each of them keep growing. (laughs) Um, But it's a, it's a, everybody says, how's it going? Yeah. Are you busy? Yeah, really busy, but are good busy. I'm, I'm just... Um, very much excited about what we're doing, about the process, about the people that I'm doing it with. Um, I love Kalani. He's just been he's been so good already to me and my family. Um, Tom Homo's been great. Um, the other offensive coaches that we've hired that I'm working with are also really excited, and I could not be more pleased with a group of guys than the guys that that. I've been working with for the past three days, and there's a shared excitement amongst us to get this thing going. And I feel the same thing from the players too. I sense a real eagerness from them to get to work, and and um, I'm really, really looking forward to the process. Well, I sure appreciated the work you did with BYU in your first go around, and I'm very excited about what's uh, going to come under your tutelage here in this uh, second stint. And I appreciate you. Um, kind of working this into your to-do list somehow today and spending a few minutes here in studio. I appreciate it. Well, it's important to do, and um, I, I just want everybody to know how excited we are about this this thing moving forward. Coach Grimes, thank you. Thank you. All right, that is Jeff Grimes, BYU's new offensive coordinator. Coming up after the break, we'll go from one football to another, the soccer kind. Michelle Vasconcelos joining us as she embarks on her professional career. We'll talk with Michelle after this. My name is Greg Rubel. This is Behind the Mic. You're listening to us on BYU Radio, Sirius XM 143, org, and the BYU Radio app. Michelle Vasconcelos next in a moment.
Did you know that BYU has more than 80 alumni chapters worldwide? It's a way to connect with other alumni, help students in need, and help spread the influence of the Y all around the world. Most places have chapters where you live, and there are also chapters based on what your major was or even your profession. And chapters do great things, like helping provide financial aid for more than 400 BYU students this year. Find your chapter and get connected at alumni.byu.edu slash chapters. BYU alumni, connected for good. Welcome back to Behind the Mic with Greg Rubel. A decorated high school soccer player in the state of Utah, Michelle Vasconcelos, then Michelle Murphy, was part of a powerhouse program at Alta High School and a two-time state finalist as a club competitor. Committing to BYU out of Alta, Michelle's freshman season of 2012 saw her score eight goals and help BYU in its run to the Elite Eight. That was as a rookie. A knee injury ends her 2013 season early in the year, but by 2014, she was back, scoring six goals, three more in 2015. Then in her senior season of 2016, a 16-goal campaign that also featured 13 assists. For her BYU career, 33 goals and 96 total points have her in the BYU Top 10 all-time in those categories. This Friday, two days from today, will mark exactly one year since Michelle Vasconcelos was the 11th overall pick in the NWSL draft selected by the Chicago Red Stars, who have waited patiently for Michelle to play as her pro rookie season was put on hold by the birth of daughter Scarlett. And while Scarlett is another word for red and Michelle is a red star, the baby name's probably purely coincidental. That said, Michelle recently spent time in a USU 23 national team camp tuning up her game for the resumption of her soccer career. And it is a pleasure to have Michelle Vasconcelos with me tonight. Behind the mic, this Catching Up with the Cougars segment is sponsored by BYU Alumni. Connected for good. Find your chapter and get connected at alumni.byu.edu slash chapters. Hello, Michelle. Hello, Greg. It's good to speak with you again. Yes, you too. It's been too long. So was that all fairly accurate? You are ready to play, right? Yes, I feel like you just summed up my career, you know, really fast. That was impressive. <laughs> but yes, I, I am ready to go. And the name Scarlet is coincidental, right? Yes. <laughs> I actually didn't even think about that. Now that you brought it up, I was like, huh. Yeah, Red Star, Red Scarlet. Okay. Um, how's life with uh, you and the baby and Pedro these days? It is so good. We never, well, maybe just me, I never imagined that it would be so much fun with our little baby, but we love it. Now, I mentioned the draft. It was January 12th, 2017, so we're literally two days away from the one-year mark that you became a pro or drafted by Chicago. How soon after draft day did you find out that you were pregnant? It was, like, pretty soon after. It was, I want to say, within the week after I didn't think anything of it just because we were in Brazil at the time and I don't know, it just kind of, I just felt like, oh, being in a different country, you know, but then like, yeah, it was like a couple of days after the draft. I was just like, something isn't right. And then that's when we kind of just looked into it more and found out the news. <laughs> you mentioned uh, Brazil. Uh, Pedro, your husband is from Brazil. And so you've, yes. you spent some time down there. Uh, yeah. So within days, you find out you're pregnant and you've just been made a professional uh, and, a, and a high draft pick by the Chicago Red Stars. Now what? Um, yeah, that's how we were sitting there. Now what? You know, um, at first it was like really devastating just because I felt like we kind of had made a plan. We knew where we were heading. And then to find that out, it was just like, OK, maybe that wasn't the plan, I, you know. And so um, right off the bat, I 
I texted my coach from Chicago and I just told him like, Hey, I, I'm coming out to Chicago. Like want to see, you know, just come and talk with you. Cause I wanted to tell him in person just because that was a big thing. You know, like you said, I was drafted 11th. And so I didn't want him to think that, um, I wasn't coming back or just that I wasn't serious about it. And so I went and told him in person. And how was and then, that? How was that news uh, received? Very well, actually. I was kind of surprised. He, he was like, "There's more to life than soccer." It's like that's so cool. You're adding another person to your family, and we'll plan on you next year. I was seriously just looking at him, like, "What?" <laughs> and the, but the yeah, pl- but the plan cool. was always to, there was going to be a next year, right? You wanted him to know, and he was pretty confident that you would try and come back, right? Yeah, for sure. That was always the plan. I even told him that I was going to come out and visit. Um, and just meet the team and come to some practices and games. And um, I did that later on in the year, too. So I felt like that was really helpful, too. Yeah. So so were you still able to feel a part of the franchise, so to speak, even though you were getting ready to have a baby? Yeah, for sure. Even when I went out there um, and went to the stuff, I like they were awesome. They like put me up in a suite for the game. <laughs> they gave me some Red Stars gear. So it felt like I was... Not necessarily part of them yet, but going to be. And when was Scarlett born? August 2nd. August 2nd. So when was it um, after that that you actually got back on the pitch in kind of some recognizable way as a soccer player again? (laughs) Um, So I did. I was good. I took my six weeks off because in my mind I was just thinking like, this is probably the only time that I'm going to get to rest. So I took that six weeks off after her and then... Um, I started back pretty slow. I think it was week like eight that I started trying to practice. I think my first thing was a co-ed game with Pedro (laughs) and I went to play and it was like, oh my goodness, I felt super awkward. My hips were not right. Like everything just felt really weird. So you didn't look like a number 11 pick that day maybe, right? Definitely not. (laughs) (laughs) But within a month or so, um, you're, you're getting the call from the national team to put you in a camp with the U23s. Is that accurate? Yes. I'm trying to think when, yeah, the end of November was the camp. Yeah. So, yeah. Luckily, so you had to get, you had to get ready quick. Um, yes. But luckily I had like a month's notice. So like right then I just started kicking it into gear. I had already been training and doing a lot, but right then I started doing two a days and, um, just like playing as much as I can. So that helped a lot going into camp. Now, I don't know if you had ODP experience or previous like junior team camp stuff. I'm not sure if you did or not. But when you get up with the U23s at the U.S. soccer level, that's that's very big time all of a sudden. And yes, you're a pro and we get that. But it's a different level when you start training with um, the red, white and blue on the chest, isn't it? Yeah, it's definitely a different level. And even um, I didn't do ODP growing up and I had taken the last year off with Scarlett, you know, so um, it wasn't like I had just finished my senior season at BYU and was going in on a high. Like I kind of felt like I was starting from ground zero playing again. Um, so it was definitely a good eye opener for me going into Chicago, just kind of giving me a base of where I need to be. But how, uh, how gratifying was it to be on the U S soccer radar, um, having just given birth and kind of working your way back? It was really cool. I kind of thought everyone forgot about me. And so um, (laughs) when the call came, I was just like, what the, like, why, you know, how did this happen? But then when I got into camp, the head coach, he was just like, it's been a year in the making trying to get you in here. And he was like, literally, as he like, you know, did his stomach, like acting like, you know, pregnant like me. I was like, wow. So 
I mean, yeah, I don't know. It, it was just cool and nice to be remembered, I guess. <laughs> and then how was the actual camp experience uh, on the pitch and, and playing with, uh, you know, the people you were with? Yeah, it was really cool. I I loved being there. The girls, I was su- not surprised, but, you know, going into those, you just think everyone is, like, kind of out for themselves, super competitive, which it was really competitive, but all the girls were really nice. And so I think that made it a lot easier coming back. Um, and it was just a really fun time. I really enjoyed it. Okay, you're talking to us tonight still from Utah, right? You're still in Utah? Yes, I am. When do you, uh, when do you and the family uh, head east and become a Red Star here? Um, so I have to be in Chicago February 16th. So we're still, we're actually going this weekend to Chicago to look at apartments. Um, so the move date isn't set yet, but sometime in February. Okay. And what does your Red Star schedule look like in terms of training and when you're going to be on the field and exhibition schedule, all that kind of thing? So I'm not exactly sure that hasn't all come out yet. Um, so I, yeah, I'm kind of in the dark right now. But, but they're going to see, but you're going to be on the field with the team here within six weeks or so, it sounds like, doing something. Yeah, yeah. I'm pretty, like, our start date is the 19th. Okay. And so I think just from there, I'm not sure, like, as far as exhibition matches or what goes. But Yeah, but but once you, once late February hits, you're into it now, and it's it's now, now you're a pro, right? Yes, yes. And uh, the team you're going into, uh, your thoughts about the teammates you'll be playing with and, and how the franchise looks overall here in the NWSL? I'm so excited. Chicago has done really well. The last three years, they made it to the semifinals. Um, so, I mean, there's that push coming in. I know a lot of the girls just kind of hearing interviews after that. They're like, we want to take it all the way, you know, make it to that final game. And um, just watching the girls, too, it was cool to be able to kind of sit on the sideline this year you know I mean I know I'm in Utah but watching in that way and just um, seeing the different players and how skilled each of them are and what they each bring I I'm hoping that will help as I go in to be able to play with them as well another BYU player in the league and BYU gave the league its rookie of the year last year that was pretty cool yes we're so happy for Ashley that was huge Ashley's now spending her winter down in Australia, where I guess it's summer (laughs) there. So she's playing soccer year-round and getting a whole different experience there. And before long, you'll be uh, lining up opposite each other uh, on the professional pitch. And that's a pretty uh, neat neat thing to think about. The NWSL, Michelle, as you know, now has a franchise here in Utah. And so we're going to see you back here at some point. Yeah, I know. I'm so excited about that. My family, like everyone's like, yay. Like, you know, we don't, I mean, they're still going to come to Chicago probably, but they're like, at least we get to see some Utah games with you here. How much uh, did you keep up or do you plan to keep up with, uh, with BYU? Um, I mean, I'm keeping up with them right now where I'm training with them, trying to get ready. So there's that. But then, I mean, I feel like I'm always this past season, I was always following games and always, if I couldn't be there, I was on Twitter or something following with them uh if you had to catalog a couple of of your most memorable moments at BYU what most frequently comes to mind when you think about your time as a Cougar Ooh, um I always think of the fun like bringing the new girls in and we'd always have our sleepover where we do like um lip or yeah like sit karaoke with headphones on so you couldn't hear you know I just always think to that fun those like sleepover times spending time with them and um just getting to play every day, too. Like, having taken the last year off, mm-hmm. um, that was, like, a huge thing. Just, like, I missed seeing my best friends every day, and just being able to play at BYU in that environment was something really special. 
After so many consecutive years in the NCAA tournament, it was a dip year for BYU, and Jen's team didn't get to the dance last year. But uh, that having happened, I think you know, in fact, I think when you came into BYU, they might have just had a year where they didn't make the tournament. Does that sound right? Yeah, so the year before I came in, yeah. they didn't make it, and then yeah. we made it to the lead eight the next year. Yeah, so you know what kind of bouncing back Jen has done in the past, and I guess you hope that the girls have that same kind of uh, same kind of rebound this year and, and, and look to get back where they belong, right? Yeah, for sure. Michelle, it's been fun talking with you, just catching up, and I wanted to get with you before you headed off to Chicago, and I hope uh, BYU fans out there will keep you in mind uh, with the Chicago Red Stars, and, and when that schedule comes out, uh, circle the dates. And, and look to see you play. We wish you all the very best as you uh, start your pro career. I guess you're a second-year rookie somehow. Um, but uh, <laughs> all the best to you and Pedro and the baby Scarlet as you travel. And uh, we just wish you the very best. And we're so proud of you, what you did at BYU, what you're going, going to do as a pro, and for being the ultimate soccer mom. So way to go. Thank you so much, Greg. It was a pleasure. All right. That's Michelle Murphy-Vasconcelos with us, our final guest tonight on Behind the Mic with Greg Rubel. Great show. Thank you, Michelle. All right. We thank Michael Miner, senior coordinating producer for BYU TV Sports, for kicking off our show. Great insight from Michael on what he's doing here at uh, the BYU Broadcasting Building and what is ahead for Cougar fans and this industry. Jeff Grimes, BYU's new offensive coordinator, was our second guest. It was a fun time uh, chatting with Jeff. And again, it wasn't an X's and O's night. It wasn't to find out what kind of offense he'll be running, but it was more about his life and what brought him to BYU once and then twice. Good to have Jeff in here. And then, of course, Michelle Vasconcelos moments ago uh, with the Chicago Red Stars. Again, her second year rookie season is coming up. Folks, thanks for tuning in tonight. Really appreciate you having with me, uh, having you with me. And if you listen on demand on the podcast, whenever you tune us in, hope you come back for more. It is Behind the Mic with Greg Grubel. Wednesday nights at 6 o'clock Mountain, 8 o'clock Eastern, right here on BYU Radio, Sirius XM 143, BYURadio.org, and the BYU Radio app. Good night. We'll talk to you next week.